0: One of the things that I know in my own life I've experienced many times, and I often need a church around me to point out um, the ways that that the Lord is working. Uh, One of the things that I've experienced, though, is sometimes, and not always, but sometimes expecting things to be different as a believer than they sometimes are. There are times in my own life, and maybe you feel the same way, when Maybe it's that sin keeps rearing its ugly face, the thing you thought you dealt with over and over again. Maybe some um, anxiety, depression, or worry, some fear that you thought was, you know, and should be gone by now because, you know, we, uh, we love the Lord and, and he's at work in our life. And there are times, and I don't know if you feel this way, maybe I'm all by myself up here, where we feel like there should have been more. If that's you, can I get an amen? Okay, good. It's not just me. I mean, if it was, I was just going to pull up my Bible and we'd finish the last song and I'd go because uh, you would not need what we have today. And I wouldn't need it if I was perfect and I'm not. And so we come to our text today and our passage today because I'll just say this we can be a frustrated people and there's a reason for that. And I think we're going to see that in our passage today. My heart in that is to say to you that if you are a frustrated Christian, you don't need to be. And I don't need to be. Because there is a way to not be. And that doesn't mean we're always going to live that. We are broken. We are a sinful people. We don't always get it right. But there are times when we do. And so we want to be in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. I want to read this for us. It tells us that now John's disciples, that's John the Baptist's disciples, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. A worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, if you're like me at all, or ever, and you've read this passage before, you've maybe just read through it thought oh cool that's a bunch of neat things and then moved on not quite sure what to do with it there are a lot of times when i've read through this passage and i've gotten some ideas or some devotional thoughts but i've never taken it i'll be honest into my heart there are times when i've read through these words and never maybe cared to know what they said, because I'll just tell you, if we really know what these say to us, it is going to cause something in us that would be new, because that's what these verses are about, a new work that Jesus is doing, not generally, but specifically. I pray that today we would approach this text as people who need that new work of Jesus in our hearts. Amen? I want to come first to the question. The question that is asked, verse 18, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? This is an honest and good question. Their understanding in asking this question spoke to the value and the need for fasting as part of a good and pious life to practice self-denial and enact the necessary mourning, sorrow, and voluntary suffering as a result of their personal sin, or as a, a result of the sin of those they love, or the suffering of the world, or someone they love, or the general brokenness of this world. Those are all reasons, good reasons, to fast. Sin, brokenness, suffering. And this is why they fasted. Their fasting, though, had become what we might call meritorious. That's a big word that you don't need to remember. What it means is that in fasting, they believed they were working towards their own salvation and their own righteousness. The fasting, which is good, we'll see how that plays out in our passage, was getting corrupted by hearts that sought, to take control this too like the comparison game we talked about last week i don't know if you remember last week we talked about the comparison game so often we as christians play a game that i call the comparison game that's when we look at the people down the street and we assume because i seem less sinful than them i must be okay we play that game at church when we look across the pew We play that game in our own families sometimes, and it is a dangerous game. Well, the game these folks are playing is just as dangerous, and it is the game of believing that one can acquire for themselves a righteousness. We see this play out in the world around us today. We see it play out, particularly in uh, those churches that would make a really big deal about things like Ash Wednesday and Lent. On Tuesday, Fat Tuesday, or what is called in some cities, Mardi Gras, you may throw all caution to the wind, do whatever it is that you want to do, because you know the next day you're going to begin what? A fast that will carry on and make up for all those things that you did wrong. This is played out in exactly the same way in every one of us, even if we wouldn't fit that first category, who, though knowing the sin we walk into, do so willingly, believing that we can wake up tomorrow, confess our sins, and see them be forgiven.
1: It's the same heart as those who would
0: do to check off as opposed to know Jesus. Church, there's a checkbox Christianity. You'll hear me talk about it a lot, because we are prone people to it. We are so prone to checkbox Christianity. And one of the dangers I have as a preacher, as I apply the Scriptures to our church and to my own heart, is to come up with a list of things that if we would do, we would be okay. The danger there is that we can all become checkbox Christians. Well, the pastor said, I need to do this. So check. The pastor said, I need to go to church. Check. I need to read my Bible at least once a day. Check. I need to pray once a day. Check. Right? I need to talk to my neighbor about Jesus at least once every seven years. Check. <laughs> and thank you for laughing at that because that would not be what I would ever say. It should happen far more than every seven years. The point is, is that we get in the habit. We, we like things neat and tidy, and so we check things off and church that's what we see in our passage here in the fasting of the of John's disciples and the Pharisees in Luke 18 verse 12 we read about the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector this is i think maybe one of my more favorite parables the tax collector we're told remember from last week he is of course the worst of the worst he stands up in the synagogue in the church And he says, beating his breast, right, and eyes down to the ground in humility, declaring himself the worst of the worst in need of mercy. And on the other hand, there's a Pharisee who stands up and not humbly, eyes straight up to heaven, boldly says, God, thank you for making me not that guy. And then he gets to his list of accomplishments. Amongst that list of accomplishments is fasting twice a week. That fast that that pharisee is so proud about in his own righteousness is the fast that Jesus is being asked about why his disciples don't follow it because everybody else does but his don't. So the tax or sorry the pharisee forgets or never knows that he like all of us are really just like the tax collector and we are all of us and here this, church, we are, no matter how righteous you are today, one decision away from being the worst of the worst. It is by grace that we're saved. Not by our works, not by the things we've done, not by our accomplishments, not by degrees, not by jobs, not by professions, not by the amount of money in our bank accounts. The only thing that separates us from
1: the streets is one decision and the grace of God. And so, church, we would look at this.
0: Luke introduces this parable when he tells it. He says this, He, that's Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Hear that, trusting in themselves that they were righteous. Church, no one can make themselves righteous. There's no list that you can print off the internet and go through in your life checking off to find yourself righteous. And what they were doing and believing is that by fasting twice a week, they were making themselves righteous. Friends, Jesus made a reference in this fasting in Matthew 6, verse 16. He says this, When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received... Their reward. It's the same fast that we read about in Mark that Jesus is referring to in Matthew. First thing you need to notice, we're going to come back to this later, but hear this now, Jesus assumes that his disciples, that is, those then, his disciples and you, if you are a disciple, will be fasting now. I say that because some of us have never fasted before. But Jesus has an expectation that his disciples would fast. Second thing you need to see in our passage in this bit of Scripture is that Jesus says, Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. You want to know what reward they've received? We see it right here in Mark chapter 2, verse 18. They've been fasting, and what happens? And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? The people took notice. See, the Pharisees had gotten their reward. The crowds recognized that they were doing what they were doing, and it caused them to go to Jesus and say, Well, what gives? They're doing this thing, but your guys don't do this thing. They must be better, right? They asked Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? And Jesus' answer is really where we need to spend our time today. Right? I wanted us to see what the fasting was so that we might really make sense of Jesus' answer. Verse 19. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus Uh, presents a picture for them, these words. He's basically saying that his disciples are the guests at a wedding feast. Now, take that as superficially as we can, just for clarity, and know that a typical Jewish wedding was a multi-day feast, a massive days-long party of merrymaking, dancing, and celebrating. It was not an afternoon or a morning. It was not over in a few hours. It was days of feasting. Now, just an aside to that, think about all the times that Jesus talks about either the church or the kingdom of God being like a wedding feast. And let me ask you, is your understanding of what we are as a church a multi-day celebration that never seems to end? Or are we maybe living in a shadow of what Christ actually intends for his church? and what we will have for all of eternity. Jesus says that they, the disciples, they won't fast. Why? Because they're with the bridegroom. In fact, he says beyond won't, and he actually says that they cannot. They cannot fast because he is with them. Now, of course they could. I mean, nothing's preventing them from... But the question remains, and Jesus' answer here is saying, why would they? Why be sorrowful? Why dwell in sin? Why sit in the suffering of fasting when they're with the bridegroom? And the bridegroom is an important note that we need to check out here. Scripture holds a really long tradition of the, the marriage celebration. Jesus refers to a bridegroom, and uh, just so you know, he is referring to himself. We see that all the more in the next verse, which we'll come to in a minute, when he talks about being taken away from them. He's foreshadowing his own death. So Jesus says, I am the bridegroom. I am the groom at this wedding feast. They can't fast, won't fast, because I'm here with them. See, they're in the middle of celebrating the most amazing thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. Isaiah 62, verse 5 says this, For as a young man marries a young woman, so, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoices over you. Jesus, obviously, as the bridegroom, is the one who is rejoicing over his people. In Isaiah 62, verse 5, the groom is who? The groom is God. Hosea 2, verse 19 through 20, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Jesus is the bridegroom who betroths himself to his people forever, God. Ezekiel sixteen eight. when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. There's a bit of a graphic picture there of the depth of the love of God for his people. We see this take a turn in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. It surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. One of the most, if not the most common imagery used in the Old Testament to talk about God and his people is the image of groom and bride. Make no mistake, when Jesus in this passage in Mark today says that the bridegroom is with them, what he's doing is declaring to them, not only is there a great feast going on, but this is the best feast ever because the promised God is with them. How could they possibly sit in the suffering and the fasting over sin and sorrow and sadness while the king of kings feasts with them? As a quick aside, let me just say this. There are times as a Christian when I get asked, and maybe you've been asked this too, why do we make such a big deal about marriage? Why do we spend so much time talking about marriage and what marriage is and what marriage isn't? Let me tell you, this is a part of it. Because not only did God institute and define marriage for his people, but God chose to model his own relationship with us, the church, through marriage marriage is so often attacked in our culture spiritually behind the scenes why because if we lose sight of what marriage really is maybe we'll also lose sight of who God really is and the devil has his plans so let me tell you this marriage is The model, right? The model that we are supposed to live in our own marriages is that of God and his people. Not that we should be or anybody should be the unfaithful bride, but the loving husband who continually reconnects and reaccepts and loves his bride even when she messes up. This is why Paul urged the husbands in the Ephesian church to love their wives as Christ loves the church. We make a big deal about marriage because God makes a big deal about marriage. Now, bringing this all back around to the specifics of our passage, Jesus is using the same sort of language he used last week that we saw when he forgave sins. Only God can forgive sins. Here again, Jesus is saying, yes, I'm God. Make no mistake, he was declaring who he was. He is the holy groom over his people. And so let me say that the question comes, why do they fast but your disciples don't? Church, that's a religious question. How does Jesus answer it? He answers it with a relationship.
1: He says the husband is here, the groom.
0: The wedding is underway. And while the wedding is underway, there is no room for anything but celebration and joy for God is with them, and they are with their God. Let me tell you this, church, right now. If you're in a good place with the Lord, you are in a good place. If you are in a good place with the Lord. You are in a good place today. But if you're not, then there's something else that you need. We'll come back around to that. The first new thing we see Jesus point to in his answer is a relationship with him. The second new thing we see in our passage, and this may seem a little bit weird, it's fasting. The second new thing we see is fasting. Look at verse 20. It says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Quick note here again like we did when we read through Matthew 6, Jesus assumes that his disciples will fast. Here he says that they will fast. Friends, Jesus assumes that if you are one of his disciples, that you will fast, period. Now that may be convicting to you to hear. It may not be at all. I will just be straight up and honest with you. As I worked on this message this week, as I studied through all these passages, my heart was deeply convicted. For a little while it took me, I was trying to remember the last time that I fasted, and for a while I couldn't remember when it was or what it was about. Finally, it came to me actually this morning while I was praying. Now, just my first bit of conviction is that I couldn't remember the last time I did or why I did. Okay? And this morning I remembered what it was. The last time that I fasted was the morning, the day, the weekend that this church decided that they were going to vote to replant.
1: And I fasted for that weekend. The thing is,
0: is that there was a lot riding on that decision. There was my own family's future. There was the future of this church. There was all kinds of stuff that that I could fast about in that moment. Let me tell you this. Since that day, do you know how many other things have been important, vital, earth-shattering, life-changing
1: that I didn't fast for? Church, I share
0: that because I know there's people in this room who have never fasted ever as believers. And I know there's people who have fasted in the past but haven't fasted any time recently. And I know there's people in this room and who are sitting there thinking, yeah, Pastor Matt, that's great, but I'm still not going to do it. And I want to tell you the conviction that you feel right now, if you do, is real, and it's true, and it's good. And I'm going to tell you why. If we forge ahead... To the final verses, what we see is that Jesus says he's doing something new. And what we need to know, we're going to come to those verses in a minute. That's a fast forward. But what you need to know right now is that fasting is the first example he uses for the new thing that he's doing. And he says that we, his disciples, will fast after he is gone. They couldn't fast while he was with them, but we will fast after he leaves. But what he tells us is that that fasting, and I need us to hear this, that fasting will be new. That fasting will be new. What do we mean by that? Well, it tells us in Scripture. Interesting how Scripture does that. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 19. This is a future prophecy given in a season of absolute upheaval in the nation of Israel for the time when the nation of Israel would find its restoration. The season of restoration for Israel is never truer than when Jesus Christ shows up. Hear these words. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Now for those of you who've ever fasted, let me ask you a question. Were those fasts seasons of joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts or were they times of sorrow sadness and suffering so Jesus says you will fast and then he says how we will fast let me ask you this how if we're fasting over the sin of the world the brokenness in the world the suffering of people which are all reasons we should fast how if we're fasting, that we might gain a new experience or new uh, understanding of the presence of God in our life? How, if we're missing those things, how could we possibly do so with joy and gladness? Well, again, the text tells us right here. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Church, what day is the day that the bridegroom is taken away from them? It is the day that he went to the cross. It is the day that he enacted the full forgiveness of the grace of God and the mercy that we receive through his own death on the cross, through the resurrection and the ascension into heaven where he now sits as our constant, ever-present mediator between us and the Father. Why is it that, that only after he's gone will our fasting be turned into joy and gladness it's because we don't fast without hope like they did we fast with a hope and a victory of what god has done and is doing and will do church hear this this means that when we fast because of personal sin and let me tell you if you're in a season of sin you should fast we do so knowing that the victory over that sin and the death that should have come from it has already been defeated. It means that when we fast because of the brokenness of the world, when we look out and we see suffering all around us, we see brokenness all around us, drug addiction all around us, hate all around us, contention all around us, we fast over these things. And let me tell you, church, we should. It's done in the promise that this world and all of existence will be refined in the fire and restored to what it's supposed to be. It means that when we fast as we seek the presence of God, it is not a blind guess or foreign to us, but we fast rooted in the very presence of God that comes to us because Christ died, was risen, and sent the Spirit to live inside of us. Church. Jesus says that we will fast after he is gone. That fast should be full of joy and gladness, hope and victory. Friends, fasting, hear this, should be a joy that we look forward to, not a requirement we bear. And if it is a joy, should we not look for opportunities to fast rather than let them go to the wayside? See, my conviction is, came to me not because I haven't fasted, but because I haven't looked for the joy of fasting over this broken world, the sin that we face, the struggles that I have in my own life and my family faces. And it makes me just wonder, what what joy have I missed out on? And let me ask you this, what joy have you missed out on? because we are meant to be a people who are fasting in the joy and the gladness of the Lord. Look again at Matthew chapter 6 verse 16 to 18. Jesus says, "When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others, right? They make it known to everybody. They're all contorting themselves, they're unhappy. Oh, woe is me, I'm starving." He says verse 17, "But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face." That your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Church, fasting is for the believer, an act of hope and joy. It is an act of life. It is a confidence in what God is doing. In two weeks, give or take, most of us will gather on a Thursday for a really big feast. Sometime, probably in the afternoon. Thanksgiving, I can't believe it's already Thanksgiving. Most of us on that day will skip dinner, I mean skip lunch, right? We probably won't eat after 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, and if we eat our Thanksgiving feast at one, two, three, or four, we will have not eaten for four or five hours. Why? Because we know what's coming is far better than what we would snack on beforehand. Because there is a feast that is coming, and it's going to be a really good feast. Church, we can fast now for the same reason. We give up now for a season because we look forward to the feast that is coming. So, Lord Church, I want to say this one more time. I think we should all in some way be fasting. For some of us, we've never done that. We don't even know what that means. We don't know what that looks like. Maybe we've only heard of fast in the context of a Catholic church or a diet plan. And I want to extend an offer to you right now. I don't have time to cover what that is in this message this morning, and I don't want to cover what that is anymore because that's not actually what the passage is about. Remember, it's just the example that we get in our passage. So I would like to extend an invitation to you. If you want to know more about fasting, you want to know what benefit that might have, walk through Scripture on that. I'd love to sit down with you over a cup of coffee, a meal or not a meal, and and just spend some time talking about it. See, this passage isn't about fasting. It's just a piece of it. So I started off today talking about the frustration that so many of us experience that so we expected more as we came in to being a Christian and yet we're still sitting here struggling with the same old things over and over again and church I want to tell you that is what this passage actually is about. We get to verse 21 and 22 look at this no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment if he does the patch tears away from it the new from the old and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The old garment that Jesus is referring to is the old garment of, of Judaism and the law, specifically the practices of piety and devotion like fasting. For generations and generations and generations, it had covered the people. It had protected them like clothing does from the dangers. It had even covered their shame, just like we see all the way in the book of Genesis as God knits together leaves to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. But as with all of all things that are not perfect, it cannot last, especially, and hear this, when it's not treated well. Israel had, despite God's provision, his presence, his promise with them, like a child wore play, wore dress clothes as play clothes. Any parent here understand that? How frustrating it is. You get the kid new clothes. They've got all their old clothes. You send them out to go play. They come back in. Their new clothes are ripped up, covered in mud, and who knows what? That's a great picture in my mind of what Israel had done with the law from the very beginning. Old wineskins also. The same image. The piety, the the law following, the the rules, the regulations of, of all of that. But again refers also to the fasting that we read about. And here's what we we know. Wine skins were meant to produce wine, which, biblically speaking, pardon uh, this as a Baptist saying, it was meant to gladden the hearts of men. Don't know if you know that or not, but the Bible tells us that wine is a good thing. Now, I'm going to say really, 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 really carefully that it is not a good thing for all people in all seasons and all times, in all quantities, Do I need to say more? Hope not. But it had a purpose, and God gave it that purpose. New wine, which Jesus talks about here, is the freshly pressed juice that comes. And it's put into new wineskins, which were made from fresh goat hide. And and I want to say carefully, fresh goat hide, not old goat hide. The wine, as it fermented, would release gases that would stretch out the, the hide, the, the wineskin. Having produced the wine and perhaps the joy for which it was designed, the old wineskins then cannot be used again for new wine because they've already been stretched to their max. They've already lived out their full purpose.
1: Like the garment that we
0: read about first. Right, A garment with holes in the knees has lived its purpose. And Jesus is highlighting the trouble with taking the new things that he's doing and simply sewing them on to what they are used to or simply adding new things into the old the way they used to. Now, I want to be really clear here, and I want you to hear me really well. Jesus is not saying there's anything wrong with those systems. Or Jesus said, I have come to fulfill, not get rid of, the law. Those things, they were helpful. God-given, good for the people of God, and useful for their purpose. Now, we don't have time to get into this full thing today, but let me just tell you, if you're interested in knowing more about this, the entire book of Galatians is about this. Particularly Galatians chapter 3. What it tells us is that the full usefulness and the purpose of the law was not to save anybody. It was to lead people to see their need for a Savior who was not themselves, not their works, not their efforts, not their traditions, but Jesus only. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Galatians, does not say this in the book of Galatians, but in both Ephesians and Colossians, he writes that we, the church, his, the disciples, need to take off the old garments and put new ones on. And I can only imagine that Paul had Jesus' words here about garments in mind as he did so. Paul knew, and of course Jesus knew, that the trouble for us so often comes when we attempt to put the new wine into old Wineskins. R.C. Sproul wrote this, with these metaphors, Jesus was saying, in essence, you cannot take the new and force it into the old structures because the old structures cannot bear it. They were never meant to. I don't think any of us would are, are actually guilty of this particular thing, to my knowledge, knowing most of you. I don't think any of us are trying to uphold the Old Testament law while while squashing Jesus onto it. Though I've known those Christians, I've known many of them. It's a bit scary sometimes. But what I do think is that there are times when we have old garments and we have old used up wineskins, and what we do is we take Jesus and we try to smash it in. Church, hear this. Jesus did not come to add to what we already have. He came for a whole new work. Simply put, church, the gospel is too big to sit on your old life. The gospel is too big to sit on on your old life. Some of us are just the right age to remember the old Chris Farley sketch, Fat Guy in a Little Coat. You don't need to have seen the sketch to picture a large, heavy, fat man who puts on his smaller friend's coat. And as he dances around singing Fat Guy in a Little Coat, suddenly he goes like this. And the whole back, of the whole thing splits out. Church, that is the exact image that I have in my head of Christians. Who try to take Jesus and put it onto something, it do- won't fit. It busts out everything. And what Jesus tells us in that moment is that not only are the skins destroyed, but the wine is destroyed too. Church, the gospel isn't good for anything if it's destroyed in your life. An old commentator once wrote this, when a man receives the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, the Holy Spirit does not come into the heart of the believer to patch up the old life, but to impart a new life, which is Christ himself. They tried to do it with religious things. They tried to just take as much Jesus as they could and kind of put it on top. Adding Jesus' commands to a legalistic life Adding Jesus' commands to the things they already knew and cared about and liked and loved. Church, some of us are really frustrated because we're doing the same thing with our lives. Jesus came to us. He died so that we could have new lives. And what we've done is we've taken him like a, like a roll of duct tape. We wrap him around ourselves thinking the duct tape fixes everything. Right, men? When in reality, all it does is cover up the fact that what's inside is still broken. It's like a coat of paint in the same way, right? You you whitewash over something broken. You can't tell it's broken, but it's got no structure left. Church, this is why Jesus says that we must be born again. That every one of us, if we are going to come into the kingdom of God, if we're going to be saved, we need to be born again, not, not cleaned up a little bit not fixed we need to be new we need to be new and some of us we grew up in really legal, legalistic backgrounds full of rules regulations and religion you know who you are finally you came to christ to be saved but maybe what you did at that point was just take jesus and smoosh him onto the rules that were already there on the other hand, maybe you grew up in a really permissive background. You found yourself embracing every sin and every passion and pleasure that came your way. And what happened? You came to Jesus. And what you did is you took all those passions and those, ple- th- those pleasures and all those things, and you took Jesus and you just smooshed him on top of all the rest. Not only is the wine destroyed, but the wineskins are destroyed too. Everything is destroyed when we try to mix the old and the new. Church, we are meant to be new. Jesus says this, Mark 8, 34 through 35, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. There are too many of us who are afraid that we're going to ruin everything we have and everything we are by giving Jesus full surrender. But what Jesus tells us that when we don't give him everything we are, we lose it anyway. And if we look at Jesus' words about the wineskins, everything is destroyed. Friends, let me tell you this. Jesus wants to do a new work in you. He began that new work a long time. He wants to do a new work in you. He does not want to just cover up the old. He wants to do a new work in you. And that new work requires... That new work requires you to submit to him and to give him all of you. And let me just tell you, if you are a frustrated Christian today, you can't figure out why you just can't get through that sin, through that anxiety, through that fear. It's because there's some piece that you're holding on to. You've you've put Jesus as a sticker over it, but you haven't actually removed it. We need to prepare our hearts for the new work that Jesus wants in us. And Jesus' comment in all of this to these folks is that what they're doing in in fasting and their sorrow and their misery and all that, it's not helping them. It's not helping them prepare their hearts for the new work that Jesus is doing because you can't mix it. So here's a couple thoughts. How do we prepare our hearts? Church, number one, we need to pray. Say, Pastor Matt, you tell me that every week. Yes, I do something I heard at the conference this week, is that in prayer, what we are doing is declaring our dependence to Jesus and on Jesus. The converse of that, when we don't pray, when we suffer from prayerlessness, a prayerlessness, you know what we're doing? We're declaring our independence. We're saying to the Lord, I don't need you. And so we need to pray. We need to go to the Lord and we need to say, Lord, prepare this work in me. Do this work in me. I can't do it myself. We submit to him in in prayer. In prayer. We talk about prayer a lot. That was another conviction I got this week. Here's what happens when you go to a church planning convention, you walk away with 10,000 convictions and a handful of encouragements. We need to be people who are in prayer. We can't do the work we've been called to do. Church, I can't do the work I've been called to do to pastor, shepherd this church. I can't, and I know that. I knew that coming in. Jesus can do that work. Jesus can do that work. Jesus can do the work of reaching your neighbors, reaching their community. That's an aside. He can do the work of reaching your heart. Okay, the second thing we need to do, number two, Um, In addition to pray, maybe it's time for some of us to fast. Maybe it's time for some of us to fast. Look, I don't want to make this a checkbox for any of us. But what I do want to remind us is what we learned about today. That fasting is a joy and a gladness, and if we're not doing it, we are missing out. If you're not doing it, you're missing out. Out Again, I want to extend the invitation. You want to know more about fasting, how to fast, what fast, whatever that looks like, come talk to me. But let me tell you this really quick. Fasting does not always need to be food. Maybe a fast that you need to do is to walk away from social media for a day or the rest of your life. Or maybe it's fasting for the news or the TV, or maybe it's giving up driving for a day and walking everywhere you need to go. Because prayer walking is a really good thing. See, it's not anything legalistic about this. This is is the great thing about the new work that God is doing in our lives. We get to do all these awesome things, and we don't have to feel bad when we don't do them. And we get to feel joy and gladness when we do. Because he's doing the work in us. Here's the third thing that we do to prepare our hearts. And again, I don't think any one of these is a checkbox. I don't think any one of these even can be a checkbox. Here's the third one. Believe that Jesus is not just trying to cover up your old life. He's trying to make you new. I'll tell you, you can't believe that without the Holy Spirit in your life making it true for you. This is why it's not a checkbox on this one. Because you can't do it. Even if it was a checkbox, you couldn't do it. We need need to believe that what God is doing in Scripture, what God is doing as we read is, is seeking to make us new, not just fixed and better. For some of us, maybe for someone in this room right now, this means turning to him for the first time
1: to be saved.
0: And to hear this and to say, Lord, I can't do this on my own, but I know you've already done it for me. If that's you, if the Holy Spirit's leading you to this right now, church, I want to invite you to come speak with me before you leave here today. Maybe it's during the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes or during our last song. Come down and, and talk to me about what it means to follow you, to confess your sin before the Lord. And I always say it doesn't need to be me. It could be somebody else here that loves Jesus. Do it. The Holy Spirit's leading you. Maybe you've been frustrated all this time, not because you haven't come to him yet, but because you're still holding on to those bits, those pieces, those things that you will not surrender to him, but he wants it all. He does not just want to cover it over. He wants to make you new.
1: Church, I want to
0: engage with you on what it means to be a people who are made new. That's why we're here. Because we are people who believe that we are being made new or have been made new, and, and we get to do that together. Maybe that's you for the first time today. I pray if it is that you'd come forward and confess your sin and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior.